Good evening. You know, I found out about that fellowship meal next Sunday. This past week, as Blake was talking to me, he just mentioned it in passing, and I said this would be a good time for our congregation to play a joke and just have all casseroles. Um, amen. You know, when it comes to the Baseball Hall of Fame, there are certain milestones that a player has to reach in order to be considered. So for like a batter, if he hits 500 home runs or has a 300 career average, if it's a pitcher, if he wins 300 games, that'll get you into the discussion. Those achievements will at least get the baseball writers talking about you being inducted. But some of the folks that have been inducted in the Baseball Hall of Fame have some glaring weaknesses. You take Reggie Jackson, for example. He has 563 career home runs. He also has the most strikeouts of any player ever, striking out over 2,500 times. His career batting average is 262, hardly all that stellar. Still, we like the players that make a splash. We like the guys who can hit the ball a long way or throw it a long way or run it a long way. We don't care if they don't play a lick of defense as long as they score 50 points a night. And, you know, we don't care if they strike out a lot as long as they hit the ball with the fence a lot. We don't care if they throw the ball to the other team a lot as long as they throw it to their team a lot. You know, when it comes to the spiritual realm, though, it's kind of the opposite. We tend to highlight the failures over the successes. We do it in our own lives. We see it with Peter. He would be an example of this and other Bible characters that we tend to highlight their failures and forget about all the good that they did. And certainly we see that in the man that we're talking about tonight. But what we see throughout this series and throughout Hebrews chapter 11 is that failure is not what is highlighted in the lives of these great men and women of faith. What is highlighted is their faith. Look at Hebrews 11. 32 through 34, it says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So there's Samson. There's his name right there in the Faith Hall of Fame, right next to these bulwarks of faith like Moses and Abraham and Noah. But if you know anything about Samson, he's kind of a jerk, wasn't he? I mean, that may be putting it lightly. He was arrogant. And it makes you wonder how in the world he ever got in. Maybe that's just me. But if you know the story of Samson, you think, really? The Faith Hall of Fame? I mean, if we were making a sports analogy, pretty good player, but Hall of Fame? But while Samson was a man of great physical strength, he was very weak spiritually. And the most important thing is that none of that really matters what I think about Samson. No matter what you think about him. What matters is what God thought about him because he included him in the Faith Hall of Fame. And personally, I don't believe anybody that's mentioned there in Hebrews 11 is not in heaven. Look with me at Judges chapter 16, verse 1. It says, Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a prostitute there and had relations with her. Now this is very telling 
when it comes to the character of Samson. This tells you something about this Faith Hall of Famer. This is just the beginning of Samson's downward trajectory. He made a series of bad decisions that led to his demise. Now understand, Gaza was 25 miles from Samson's hometown. Now assuming that Samson walked it, 25 miles would be about 52,800 steps. And understand this about Gaza. Gaza was the Philistine headquarters. Samson had no business being there. He was public enemy number one, so he's putting his life at risk. Why? Why would he risk his life to go see a prostitute? Well, do I really need to answer that? You know the answer to that because you've done the same thing. Maybe you hadn't done what Samson did, but you've all been attracted to sin or temptation has gotten the best of you, and you've taken steps towards it. Even if you knew it was wrong, Sin is attractive. It looks good. It tastes good. It feels good. You know, we talk about people struggling with sin. Sometimes people don't struggle with sin. They kind of like it. That's why they continue to do it. He took 52,800 steps in the direction toward destruction. And that's how it is for most of us. We don't ruin our lives with one bad decision. It's multiple steps. We find ourselves in spiritual chaos. One bad habit at a time. One bad decision at a time. One bad step at a time. Look at Genesis chapter, excuse me, Judges chapter 14, verse 3. This also gives us some insight into the character of Samson. It says, Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. You know, it seems that Samson had some pretty shallow criteria when it came to choosing a spouse. Of course, his lust for good-looking women would be, you know, would bring turmoil into his life, of course. Samson's primary folly was his failure to live up to his purpose. In Judges chapter 13, it tells us that the barren wife of Manoah was mysteriously visited by the messenger of Jehovah who appeared to her in the form of a man. The messenger informed her that she would conceive a son. The child, who would be called Samson, would be raised a Nazarite, and his role would be to begin the process of delivering Israel from oppression of the Philistines. And because of this special mission, young Samson would be blessed with great strength. Now, it's important to note that his growing hair would be a sign of his strength, but not the source. That's important. The Nazarite vow made him special, and this vow stated that no razor shall touch his head. Samson was set apart for a special mission, which was to rescue Israel, but his strength came from God, not his hair. His hair was a sign of his strength. God was the source of his strength. His hair was the sign God was his strength. Of course, Samson would fail many times over to live up to his special calling. For example, he failed to live up to the training that he received as a Nazarite by being involved in a wine drinking feast. This was a big no-no for a Nazarite. Numbers chapter 6 verse 3 tells us that one of the tenets of a Nazarite vow was that they were to abstain from wine or strong drink. In fact, the Nazarites were not to even touch the skin of a grape. Samson also took honey from the carcass of a dead lion, another no-no. This violated laws concerning ceremonial separateness. Number six and verse six reads, all the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near to a dead person. So he violated that. But without a doubt, Samson's most notable career lowlight 
centers around his relationship with a woman by the name of Delilah. Let's go to Judges chapter 16. Starting in verse 4, it reads, After this, it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. Then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to, uh, or how you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh cords that have not been dried, then I will become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh cords that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in wait in an inner room, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the cords as a string of toes snaps when, when it touches fire, so his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have deceived me and told me lies. Now please tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me tightly with new ropes, which have not been used, then I would become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. For the men were lying in wait in the inner room, but he snapped the ropes from his arms like, like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Up to now you have deceived me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my hair with the web and fasten it with a pin, then I will become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his hair and wove them into the web. And she fastened it with the pin and said to him, The Philistines, Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the pin of the loom and the web. So Delilah kind of plays the role of Judas here a little bit and and. She sells out Samson for some silver. In the beginning, at least, Samson isn't taking the bait. Delilah may be pretty, but she can't get Samson to budge. He's not giving away a secret. But then notice verse 15. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have deceived me these three times and not told me where your great strength is. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah pulls the don't you love me card. Don't you love me? And then it says that, that she pressed him daily with her words. You know what that means? She nagged him to death. She nagged and nagged and nagged until finally it wore him down. So the Philistines' plan was set in motion. And then notice verse 19 and following. It says, She made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. Then she began to afflict him and his strength left him. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains, and he was a grinder in the prison. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. 
Remember when I said that Samson's hair was a sign of his strength but not the source? Here's where I get that. When it says, he did not know that the Lord had departed him. Hair was the symbol of his vow, but his strength was in the Lord, the Spirit of God being upon him. In verse 23 and following, it says, Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. For they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country, who was slain or has slain many of us. So the Philistines are celebrating. They're cheering. Our God beat your God. Samson's God was no match for our God, the God that was supposedly a God of rescue that was going to deliver Israel, couldn't even deliver Samson. They made fun of Samson and Samson's God by bringing him before the people and entertain, to entertain them. The Philistines reveled in their victory as they mocked Samson and his God. But here's the turning point. Although Samson had messed up the plan, God was still working. And notice verse 28 and following. It says, then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson, Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the lords of all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. Then his brothers and all his father's household came down took him, brought him up, and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah, his father. Thus, he had judged Israel 20 years. So, Samson, near the end of his life, recognized that he had done wrong. He recognized where he had gone wrong. And realizing that his strength was in the Lord, he called on God to intervene. And in that moment, I believe that Samson finally understood fully his set-apartness, if we could even call that a word. In his lowest moment, he agreed with God, with the vow, with his purpose. In his final prayer, Samson invokes three different names for God. First, you have Yahweh, the covenant name of the self-existent one. He designates God as Adonai, or Lord, which is suggestive of the, the sovereignty or mastery of deity over man. Then he uses the designation Elohim, God, which likely points to the strength or power of deity. Now, over in Judges chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, we see a glimpse, just a glimpse of Samson's faith. It says, then he became very thirsty and he called out to the Lord and said, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that water came out of it. When he drank, his strength returned and he revived. Therefore, he named it en Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Now, let's be honest here, okay? Even in his faithful moments, Samson still comes across as pretty arrogant and selfish, doesn't he? 
I mean, am I, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I, I feel like he's a little bit arrogant. It also seems based on the information that we are presented with, and that, that's a key. The information we're presented with, we don't have all the information perhaps, but it seems like the information we're presented with, that Samson lived his whole life as a defiant sinner, but somehow kind of snuck in at the back door at the end. He got into God's good graces in his dying moments. Although it does seem that he indicates some sort of remorse and redemption, but even that kind of feels like a reach, doesn't it? But at the end of the day, who really cares? Who really cares about my assessment of Samson? Who cares about your assessment of Samson? Because at the end of the day, we find him mentioned there in Hebrews 11, among all those others who are mentioned there, because of what? Not their failure, but their faith. Let's shift gears for just a second. I want you to notice Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes these words. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, remember that Paul didn't carry around a King James New Testament didn't have the Bible that we have. So any scriptures he's referring to are the Old Testament. The Torah, he's talking about, you know, uh, being a Jew and being a Jew, his words and his way of thinking are connected to his heritage and, and that influences his message. And when Paul or the other apostles spoke about Jesus fulfilling the prophecies, they meant that the Messiah fulfilled God's covenant with Israel, and Jesus is representative of God fulfilling his covenant. Jesus is merging both God and Israel. He is fulfilling God's promises to Israel to save and redeem them. He's also keeping up Israel's end of the bargain and being faithful to the point of death to their father. So Jesus brings to fulfillment the entire story of Israel. And this is where you start to notice some really cool things when you read the Bible that way. Take pretty much any story within the story of Israel, and you will see how Jesus is Israel's God fulfilling the story. And whether it be Joseph or Abraham or David or whoever, you can see how Jesus is similar to that person, but not really that person. And you see it with Samson. You know, similar to to Judas, you know, Delilah. You know, sells him out for some silver. But Samson is a man of, of great strength. You know, he's, he had the Spirit of God. He had a miraculous birth. I mean, there's some similarities with the Messiah. However, Samson was also a messed up guy. He was not a, a, a flawless individual by any means. But the story of Samson leaves you wanting something more. It leaves you looking for something better, and that is a theme that we see play out over and over again with all of these so-called messiahs, all of these shadows, all of these figures of the one true messiah. They all had some similarities to Jesus, but they certainly weren't Jesus. And so this theme comes up that we've talked about before, this better-than theme. In fact, that's the whole theme of the book of Hebrews. There's something better than And it's Jesus. He is better than all those who came before him. 
All the folks listed in the Faith Hall of Fame were flawed heroes, but Jesus is the ultimate flawless hero. The deliverer, the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's plan, and the completion of the story. And the encouragement we get from these flawed heroes like Samson is that God finds usefulness in what we would otherwise find despicable. He finds treasure in the trash. He's not willing to dispose of you or set you by the curb just because you messed up. He hasn't thrown you away. If someone like Samson can be used, if someone like Samson can find himself in the Faith Hall of Fame, don't you think that you can? I mean, that should be the biggest encouragement we receive from reading through these names and especially seeing Rahab, Samson, people like that, is that if they can make it, certainly you can. But it starts with faith. And that is the signature trait of every one of these people. And not just any kind of faith, a faith in action. They all did something. They were all moved by faith. Abraham moved. Noah built. Moses led. Gideon fought. Jacob wrestled. Joshua marched. You, you see it? You see this theme? You got to do something. I announced the Wiley football games on Friday nights, and I, I like to do something called press box reflections. And between the third and fourth quarter in that break, I tell a story and, uh, that kind of has an application to it. And uh, I told the story of Larry Walters, and I've told you that story before. Got a pretty good reaction from it. Larry Walters is the guy, true story, that, that went down to the Army Surplus store and bought the weather balloons and tied them to his lawn chair because he wanted to see his neighborhood from a different perspective. I've told you that story, right? And so he takes a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a pellet gun, and he figures, you know, he'll, he'll go about 100 feet in the air, and then when he gets ready to come down, he'll just shoot out, you know, the, the water balloons, or the weather balloons one by one, and then, you know, he'll, he'll land. Of course, he didn't expect to go 11,000 feet and, uh, and, and get into LAX's airspace. And so he stayed up there two hours because he was too afraid to shoot out the balloons. Finally, when he gets down on the ground, he's fined. He's arrested, and the newspaper reporter asked him some questions. So the questions were this. Were you scared? Yes. Would you do it again? No. Why did you do it? Because you can't just sit there. You know, that's true. You can't just sit there. Faith is a verb. It moves. It's, it's about action. It does something. You know, folks, we all have a past, and some of you have a past that you have trouble getting past. We've all done something. We've all done something that we are not proud of. We've all done something that we're trying to get past. We're all trying to do something better going forward. But some people have stopped right here and said, you know what, I, I can never move past my past, so therefore I, I'm just going to stop. This is my lot in life. This is who I am. But if you're here tonight, if you're still drawing breath, your story hasn't ended. I believe there's a lot of people that God is still trying to write their story and they keep stealing the pen. Stop. As long as you're drawing breath, you've still got hope. This isn't the end of the game. You realize that, don't you? You know what this is? This is halftime. For many of you, this is halftime, and you got beat up in the first half, and you got hurt in the first half, and you're, you're, you're trying to keep going even though you're injured, but halftime is the point in the game where you reset. 
It's where you rest. It's where you get further instruction. And if you're losing, it's where you kind of regroup and you adjust. And there's been a lot of teams. In fact, I, I went to a coach's clinic with Nolan Richardson one time, and he said the team that has to adjust at halftime usually wins. There are teams that were winning at halftime. They go out and lose because they didn't keep focused. But if you use this time to reset, to rest, and, and to adapt and adjust, well, then you get to go out and win the second half. But the key is you keep doing something. You keep moving forward. You keep playing. Even if you're hurt, you keep going till the whistle blows, right? Because this isn't the last chapter. It is to be continued. This isn't the end. The, the whistle hadn't blown. The, the, the buzzer hasn't gone off. So you keep fighting. You keep playing. You keep going. You play till the whistle blows. This is halftime. Don't stop now. And don't consider yourself a failure, especially when you read names like Samson in the Faith Hall of Fame. There's very little about Samson. You really got to dig to find the faith. And yet there he is, next to Abraham, Moses, David, all those names. He made it. Don't you think you can make it? But you got to do something. You got to do something. You got to keep moving forward. You got to keep fighting. You know, here's the beautiful thing about heaven. The beautiful thing, the scary thing. It's won or lost right here, right now. People say, well, how, how could God send anyone to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. You send yourself to hell. You choose hell. At the end, when it's all said and done, God's going to give you what you chose all along. So if you've chosen to live your life in rebellion to him, that's what you get for eternity. And if you've chosen to live your life for him, even if you've messed up along the way, well, he's going to give you that. Eternity with him. Heaven is won or lost right here, right now. So why would you quit? Keep fighting. And I'll see you in heaven. If you have a need, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.